Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking with Professor Barbara Sattler. Professor Barbara Sattler is chair in Ancient and Medieval Philosophy at Ruhr University Bochum. I hope I'm pronouncing the name correctly in Germany. The main area of her research is metaphysics and natural philosophy in the ancient Greek world. And today, she's here to talk with us about a wonderful book she published with Cambridge University Press called The Concept of Motion in Ancient Greek Thought, Foundations in Logic, Method, and Mathematics. Barbara, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure Uh, to be here. Thank you. Um, Can you tell us a little about yourself, your field of expertise, and more importantly, how you became interested in philosophy, especially ancient (laughs) Greek philosophy? Sure. Um, So I'm currently teaching at a university in Germany, but I used to teach, actually I started in the US. I started at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and then I moved to Yale for a couple of years, and then to the UK. Uh, I taught at St. Andrews in Scotland, and now I'm in Germany, so I've seen different academic surroundings. Um, And um, as you said, my area of expertise is ancient philosophy, I'm especially interested in the development of basic concepts that we take for granted, like time, space, motion, how they first, so to say, arise in ancient times and how they arise in ways that are significantly significantly and interestingly different from the way we use them today um, and how they gradually developed in the way that we use them today and take them just as given. Um, especially, I'm especially interested in the pre-Socratics, Plato and Aristotle, where, so to say, everything starts, really. So the origin of Western philosophy. Um, as for how I got into philosophy, I was just interested in, well, almost all subjects uh, when I graduated from high school. So I couldn't decide what to do. I was drawn to literature very much, uh, as well as to physics and mathematics and history and architecture and art history and so on. So um, I couldn't make up my mind. And I actually then started with studying uh, literature and philosophy and mathematics and discovered it's a bit too much. Uh, And the great thing about philosophy is, of course, you don't really have to decide because you can then always do a philosophy of whatever you want. Um, so philosophy was one way of not having to decide um, between all the different interests I have. And so it's still to this day, I'm on the one hand very interested in um, aesthetics and literary topics and so on, but also interested in uh, the beginnings of um, the interchange between philosophy and mathematics. Uh, that's sort of say a second book I'm working on at the moment, the beginning of philosophy of mathematics. I'm interested in uh, f- physics. This is part of what you see in this book, um, the, the groundwork for the conceptualization of theoretical physics. So philosophy for me was always a, a possibility uh, to not ha- to have to decide between all the different interests I have. It's a fascinating career you've had in the States, UK, Scotland, and now Germany. Um, and we will talk about your the book you're, that you're working on at the end of the podcast. We'll ask you to introduce the book. Um, I'm interested to know, this is a very niche topic, the concept of motion in ancient Greek thought. It's something, as you mentioned, we might take for granted, but it's 
It's one of the fundamental concepts. And so I'm interested in knowing how the idea of this book came about. And also it would be great if we talk about, uh, in general, about the intellectual processes through which some central uh, uh, philosophical concepts develop from ancient times to modern times. And one of them is motion that you talk about in the book. Yeah. Um, so the this book actually came about because I've always been fascinated by um, the observation of um, changes and motions in the natural world, especially if they were if they are repetitive uh, motion changes like um, the waves in the sea, um, the um, starting and stopping of a breeze, the flickering of fire, the changes of light during the day, the changes of the moon, and and these kinds of things. And I've been always fascinated by at least two aspects of this. On the one hand, by the aspect that um, things keep constantly changing and moving, and yet we can orientate ourselves and we can give an account of these changes. We can explain them. We can capture them somehow. And on the other hand, I've always also been fascinated by the fact that there are these changes and motions, but yet in these changes, we can detect some stability, some order, some patterns, some regularity. Um, so this has this has been very fascinating for me. And uh, motion and change are um, one of the most puzzling features of the natural world for ancient philosophers. Um, so that kind of fits very nicely um, together. We we get we see this from Sinus paradoxes uh, that were uh, very important um, for natural philosophy to to overcome them. Um, and these, these uh, Sinus paradoxes are also fascinating because everybody, I think, who encounters them first thinks, okay, something must be wrong with that. Yeah? Uh, there is motion, we can give an account, so there can't be right, the paradoxes. Uh, but at the same time, same time, it's not as easy to uh, put your finger at what's exactly wrong with them. Um, now, some philosophers think that, you know, since the 19th century, we have the mathematical tools to deal with motion, so there's no paradox left. But if you look at the scholarly literature, you see over and over again, new articles popping up and saying, oh, okay, now I've really solved Sinus paradoxes. Now I can tell you what went wrong. And that shows that these paradoxes are still very fruitful, and they're still um, helpful for the academic um, community and the wider audience to keep us alive uh, in thinking about motion and making us aware that this is a phenomenon that's actually very puzzling and very surprising and that's uh, worth thinking about. And with motion, um, as, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm interested in this development of these uh, big concepts like motion, uh, time and space. So I, actually I'm, I'm working uh, on the book for each of them. And I'm especially interested in, on the one hand, showing the, the rich array of uh, this conceptual basis on which we stand and which we normally take for given, right? So if you look at your speedometer in the car, you're normally not very surprised. Yeah? You just say, okay, I'm, I'm going by with, I don't know, 50 miles per hour or so. Um, but actually what I want you to uh, to do after reading this book is to, to think when you look at your um, speedometer, hey, wow, how much con conceptual work needed to go into that? I mean, there's one thing about the technical um, manifestation, but it's also the conceptual work that was needed in order to actually think of such a thing as a speedometer. So I want us to make us aware of um, how many centuries of thought needed to go into 
um, being able to conceive of something like a speedometer. And I also want to show that there have been alternatives in the history of philosophy, so that the, the way we use these concepts is not just uh, a complete given, it's not just something that's necessary. There have been alternatives. And I'm also interested in which alternatives were lost, um, which alternatives are not there any longer, and for which reason. Um, you know, I um, I talk about motion in the book, and it captures the Greek term kinesis. And kinesis is a is a broad term. It can mean all kinds of processes. So growing, coming into being, um, um, alteration, uh, locomotion. And I focus in on um, locomotion, um, and um, because it's the paradigm case, and it's it's easiest to understand, um, and but it also generalizes. And locomotion not only asks us to bring together being and non-being, but also time and space. Um, and that's sort of say the, the center really of, of the book, how we can conceive of speed, which means um, something is you know faster if it covers more space in less time, or if it um, uh, covers, sorry, if it covers uh, the same space in less time, or if it, um, it covers more space in the same time. Um, and what's very interesting uh, with this development is that um, there are different stages of this conceptualization of speed. Um, and what we just talked about, we, we end up with a stage of conceptualization, which is not quite uh, the stage that, that we are normally thinking of our concept of speed. Um, and you know the reason why it's it's difficult maybe um, best explainable if we if we try to compare so to say different motions. So motions in ancient times is always done looked at com um, comparatively. So if we if we want to account for speed, we never give get an account that says one single thing is moving with this uh, speed. Yeah. So if you say okay, I'm I'm uh, biking with 15 kilometers per hour, you, you never would get such a thing in ancient times. You always get something is faster than something else. Yeah? Or I'm faster than I was yesterday or something like this. Um, and the different conceptual stages um, are, so to say, um, only given comparatively, but we have this, I would call them three different conceptual stages. So if you if we want to compare speed, then uh, let's imagine a trireme. So, you know, triremes are these kind of very efficient, powerful, ancient ships uh, uh, where we have three rows of rowers on each side. Um, and normally it's 170 uh, uh, people who are kind of moving them. So they're really fast. Um, and if you want to compare such a trireme uh, with um, a, a merchant ship, then of course, automatically you would say, well, the merchant ship um, is slower, right? And this is all happening a lot, um, so to say, in um, ancient times. So when we get the Achilles uh, uh, and the tortoise paradox, basically, um, Sino wants us immediately to think, oh, Achilles is the fastest runner in the, in, in the ancient world. He, of course, will be faster than the tortoise, which is one of the slowest moving animals. But if we want to now know, well, you know, perhaps... Um, Achilles is not well, right? Or perhaps the trireme is taking it easy or, or something like this. Um, how can we really um, compare um, a speed? Not just say, well, in general, uh, this is how, how it will be. 
Or if we compare two triremes, if we compare the trireme of the Athenians uh, to the, that of the Spartans, how, how would we do that uh, conceptually? How would we understand that? Now, the easiest case is, let's say these triremes are moving from Athens to Corinth, right? Um, and um, then the easiest would be, we, we stand in Corinth and we they start at the same time, they cover the, the same distance, and we just look at which one um, arrives in Corinth first, and that one is the faster, right? So that's there. We don't have uh, any conceptual um, um, conceptualization going on. All we have is to say faster is the one that's there first. Things are getting slightly more complicated once we say, oh, they don't start at the same time. They cover the same distance from Athens to Corinth, uh, but they don't um, start at the same time. In this case, what we have to do is we have to measure time. And this is also what explains, you know, why we often get uh, in Plato as well as in Aristotle's explicit account, the reduction of speed to time. Yeah? Um, so since they cover the same distance, uh, the one will be faster, which needs less time to cover that. So all we have to measure is, is uh, time. But what now, and that's the third stage, what now if they also cover different distances? Uh, so if they are not both going from Athens to Corinth, but let's say one is going from Athens to Corinth and the other one is going from Athens to um, Aegina. Um, so in one case is, let's, let's leave, leave out nautic miles, I just give it in kilometers. One is going from Athens to Corinth, which is, you know, 60 kilometers or something like this. The other one is going from Athens to um, Aegina, which is like 23 kilometers or so. Um, and let's say one takes uh, the the one to Corinth takes five hours, and the one to Aegina um, takes um, two hours. Which one is faster? Now, so to say, we can't just reduce it to time because then we can just say, oh, well, the one going to Aegina um, takes less time, but of course it is also a, a different distance, right? So we, in our the, the way we understand speed, namely. Um, how much distance is covered by how much time. It's not enough just to look at the time. It's also not enough to look at the distance. Uh, we, all we, if we only look at the distance and we can say, oh, one is um, uh, covered a, a bigger distance, namely from Athens to um, Corinth. Um, but is it that, that way faster? Um, so we can say the one is, has covered more space, the other um, has taken less time. Which one is faster? And it's only if we really look at the relation of time and space that we can tell which one is faster. So if we say, okay, the one covers this 60 kilometers in five hours, so it's taking roughly 12 kilometers per hour, and the other one is covering 23 kilometers in two hours, so it's going roughly 11.5 kilometers per hour, that we can say, oh, the one with 12 kilometers per hour is going faster. So we really have to look at this relation. And um, explicitly looking at this relation, so and and connecting it to numbers. That's something we don't get in the whole of antiquity, but we get all the conceptual um, layout, all the conceptual work that's necessary to give such account in Aristotle. But then for metaphysical and mathematical reasons, he never gives such an explicit account in the way we have this concept today. I, uh, let's talk about the, uh, the first chapter of the book, can you talk about the role of logic and mathematics in, in establishing natural philosophy? Sure. Um, so I'm looking in this book at 
three um, features that are especially important, um, namely at how logic plays in, how mathematics plays in, and how um, different um, standards for philosophy, um, methods um, and standards like the principle of, of non-contradiction or the principle of sufficient reason play in. Um, and you may think, well, this is a bit uh, far removed from motion, but I'm trying to show how changes in logic, uh, mathematics, and in these um, uh, methods or standards actually were necessary in order to conceive of motion. So for logic, um, I'm actually focusing in on a very particular um, logical feature. I'm focusing on logical operators. Um, and more particular on the separation and uh, connection operators. So the um, separation operator that's used uh, most often there is just negation. And the uh, connection operator is identity or uh, predication. They are not strictly distinguished at the beginning, um, identity and predication. And uh, you may think, well, you know, the way negation is used is really far removed from um, how we think about motion. Um, but to give you just an example why it is very important, if we look at the beginning of where this book starts, so the book looks at the development of the notion of motion from Parmenides, so 5th century BCE, um, to um, Aristotle, um, or 4th century uh, BCE. With Parmenides, we have uh, the biggest challenge to um, any conceptualization of motion. And with Aristotle, we have a first um, fundament for um, a, a theoretical physics, if you want for capturing motion. So that's why these are the, so to say, the two endpoints of the project. And if we look at Parmenides and how he uses um, negation, then we see that for him, negation indicates the absolute opposite of what is negated. Um, so it works as what I call an extreme negation. It indicates the polar opposite. So if he um, indicates, um, you know, not Red, for instance, then that's something that has uh, is not red in in any respect. So it's not, you know, one part is red or it's it's red at a different time. For him, it's a, an absolute negation. And so if you negate being um, and you get non-being, um, then what you get is, so to say, something that has no being whatsoever. Uh, um, and motion is so one of the important features of motion is the. the important problem it raises is that it asks us to bring together being and non-being. So if something changes or moves, then something is first some F, some predicate, and then it's not this predicate, right? It's first here, and then it's not here. So we are, we are bringing together some, some being, some you know, being F, some being here, with some non-being. And if, if we don't have that, then there, no motion has occurred, right? If something is always um, the same, is always the same place, then there's no motion. So it's essential to motion that we have uh, first F and then not F. Um, and But if you think about not in this extreme way, this kind of completely excluding um, what is negated, um, then basically when you think about non-being, then you're, so to say, in the realm of something that's not um, understandable that's, that doesn't that does that can't be conceived. So this is um, why negation is very important. And Plato, in his Sophist, uh, 
redefines negation. And he shows that by negation, we don't always uh, have to mean the polar opposite of what's negated, but we can also understand it as a sign of difference. Yeah? So if I say um, motion is not being, all I'm saying is uh, what it means to be in motion is not the very same thing as what it means to be, but, to be, but motion still can be, right? It can sort of say share in being as, as Plato calls it. So it's not the complete opposite of the original input. It's just showing some otherness. And that's a very important um, for bringing together being and non-being as motion requires us to do. Um, so that's for logic to give you a taste for uh, the logical side. And then for the mathematical side, um, Mathematical structures are very important for um, natural philosophers to show that uh, the natural world, the world of changes in motion, um, can be um, understood that it's intelligible. So mathematics is one of the few, if not the only, science around that counts as a strict science, at least at the time of Plato and Aristotle. So if you look at how Plato and Aristotle um, address mathematics, then this is sort of say, a paradigm science. Yeah? Um, now, if you have such a science and you want to establish another one, like natural philosophy, then it seems a good idea to look whether we can employ structures of this science um, for natural philosophy in order to show that we are here dealing also with an object that's worth scientific investigation. And this is done in a very different way. So Plato uses mathematical structures um, in order to show that the whole world is set up mathematically. Um, Aristotle is more careful there, and he, but he introduces mathematical concepts like the concept of continuity from the mathematical realm in order to make time, space, and motion understandable. Uh, let's talk about the second chapter. You've raised a number of excellent points, which I'm sure we'll pick up as we go further. Um, your second chapter, you talk about uh, Par uh, <clears throat> uh, Parmenides' account of object of rational inquiry and, and how it presents a challenge to natural philosophy. Uh, can you talk about that part of the book, please? Sure. So um, for Parmenides in his famous poem, he just wrote this one poem, that's just this one word. Um, he tries to show uh, what's the only object of rational um, inquiry. Um, and in order to do that, uh, he gives us uh, criteria for um, rational investigation. He gives us at least um, three criteria that I deal with in the book, um, namely the principle of non-contradiction. Um, the principle of non-contradiction, you know, to some degree uh, probably was used before, but he's the first one to use it in a very systematic way as a real um, guideline um, for his um, thinking. Um, he uses the principle of sufficient reason in a very prominent way, and he uses what I what we could call um, that something is um, analyzable or testable by reason. And, and these uh, criteria he uses uh, in order to show how we can make philosophy a real kind of rigorous science. But that means also that um, given his logical tools available, about which I just mentioned already, the negation operator, um, what he what he thinks is a possible object of scientific investigation is very restricted. Um, it's um, for him the 
the only thing that can be thought, the only thing that can be consistently thought that has a sufficient reason that's necessary. Um, and that for him is a completely simple being without any differences. There can be no um, differences of time and space, no spatial temporal differences, because with his negation operator, we can't think about differences, right? We can only think about um, complete the complete um, opposite of something. So if we are dealing with something that doesn't allow for any temporal or spatial differences, then we can't deal with something that's actually a sensible object or an object in the perceptible world. So the only object of investigation there is for him is if you want um, the uh, the object of thought, um, the the logical object of um, a, um, a thinking. Um, and that also leads him to this kind of famous um, fragment three, where he says um, either the same thing that can be thought also is, or what uh, what is can be thought. I mean, there's different translation about this, but it also it, it in any case it gives you a sense of um, how. Um, closely tied for him, um, the object of inv investigation and thinking is, um, it's the only thing that can lo logically be conceived, the only thing that's intelligible, and that's the object of thought. It's not something sensible. And, and how does this, his work, how did this work uh, lead to the exclusion of natural philosophy from rational inquiry? Right. Um, so, um, you, you can see that um, if if this is your understanding of philosophy, that the only object of uh, investigation is this kind of logical um, object that's completely simple and doesn't allow for any uh, temporal or spatial differences, you can't think of motion, you can't think of time, you can't think of space. Um, so basically what Parmenides does is present these criteria of inquiry and show it tries to show that um, if we want to really be scientific about our, our philosophy, then we have to kind of meet these criteria. And uh, natural philosophy can't meet these criteria because they're making you know all these differences in their objects of investigation and so on. Um, he gives us a cosmology. Um, as the second part of his poem, but it's not meant as a, oh, well, here is the real cosmology, right? What people before me did was wrong, but here I can give you a real cosmology. Rather, it's what he calls um, the doxa in which there's no reliability, no re reliability for scientific investigation. So basically he shows, hey, I can do cosmology as well as you did before. That's not the point, but this is not a scientific enterprise. Yeah? So thus he puts forward the challenge how can you do uh, cosmology? How can you do natural philosophy and still do it as a rigorous um, scientific enterprise in the way I presented you uh, a scientific enterprise should look like? And uh, you, there's this concept, rational admissib uh, admissibility. Can you tell us what that means? How is it used in yeah. relation to the, to the concept of motion? Yeah. Okay, so this is the, the only um, criterion, so to say, I, I labeled myself. Um, um, so I have, there's the principle of non-contradiction, there's the principle of sufficient reason, and there is rational admit, admissibility. And I labeled it because I think this is something that people uh, normally don't notice, and it's just taken for granted, but we should actually make us aware of what's going on here. Um, so it's basically a criterion that just says the criterion for our judgments about you know, any investigation must be our reason. 
So it's not just our senses or experience or something like this, but it's our reason. Um, and that means that uh, whatever I investigate, I um, can rationally analyze. Um, and um, the, so to say, the, the end product must be such that it can withstand rational scrutiny. Um, and um, it also means that um, there is no other authority than our reason. Yeah? So um, it's not divine intervention. It's not um, just um, an experience somebody happens to be. Um, it's just our reason. And it also means that it should be generalized. Uh, we could, should be able to generalize it such that, you know, my uh, result of investigation and your result and somebody else's result should all lead to the same because we can all use our reason that basically works in in the same way and it's a it's a criterion that um, Parmenides introduces in his poem and in his fragment seven when so the poem is basically a, a person who gets initiated by a goddess to the what she calls the well-rounded truth as well as the opinions of the mortals and the goddess, so to say, presents her revelation of what truly is and uh, what's just the, the wrong opinion of the mortals. And then at this point in fragment seven, all of a sudden she says, OK, I've now presented to you this account. Now you go and test with your own reason what I've said. Yeah, and you should get to the same result. So it's very interesting because on the one hand, we have this divine revelation as we have it before um, um, by the muses, for instance, the muses who uh, reveal to Hesiod their truth and so on, right? So it sounds like something that the person to be initiated should just take up um, by this divine authority. But then this divine authority says, no, 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 no. It, you shouldn't buy it just on authority. You should check it with your own reason, right? And that's a very interesting point because it also means that the divine reasoning of the goddess and our reason to a certain degree should overlap so that we get to the same result. Yeah? And so this is a really important point, I think, where um, in philosophy, it's, it's clearly said the authority of um, our, all our judgments should be um, our own reason. Uh, let's talk about uh, Zeno. How does he advance, build upon and then advance uh, Parmenides' criteria for philosophy? Mm -hmm. So, Sino is um, Parmenides' most eminent student, um, and he's probably well known to everybody um, for his uh, motion paradoxes. So, the paradox that um, the Achilles will never be able to overtake uh, the tortoise, um, or that the moving error is addressed. Um, and um, Sino very heavily relies on this criteria that um, Parmenides introduced as criteria for um, any um, scientific investigation. So um, the principle of non-contradiction is first used in this systematic way in Parmenides' poem. And uh, for a paradox work, you need to be sure that the principle of non-contradiction is regarded as um, a strict criterion because a paradox only works if it's clear that if you get entangled in um, uh, contradictions, if you get entangled in inconsistencies, then something is wrong, right? Otherwise, a paradox wouldn't wouldn't work. Um, so he, he builds on that, but he advances this further by... And now showing, so to say, inconsistencies in the opponent's position itself. So with Parmenides, Parmenides basically showed, okay, um, here is my 
position and somebody assuming motion, time, space, and so on, um, they are, what they say is inconsistent with what I've shown before. And Sino now says, okay, I put this to side um, my own opinion. I put to the side Parmenides' opinion. I just look at what the opponents wants to say is the case, namely motion takes place and so on. And then I show that from within this position, that it doesn't get off the ground uh, because it is inconsistent in itself. Yeah? So it allow the way he kind of further develops this is in order to show that a position in itself is uh, not working uh, without bringing uh, to the investigation any of his own conviction. So that's how he deals with the principle of non-contradiction. Um, and the, with the principle of rational admissibility, that we just talked about, um, he he takes this also over and tries to show that our senses um, and our everyday experiences are really not um, adequate um, criteria for judging what truly is. Yeah, sure, we all experience motion. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that motion is uh, a proper subject of scientific investigation. Doesn't mean that motion is something that truly is. Um, so he kind of reinforces um, that. Um, and he also takes up some of the uh, uh, PSR reasoning that we find with uh, Parmenides, uh, especially. So Parmenides has used it um, most prominently for arguing against um, generation corruption. So th that's the most famous argument where PSR reasoning is involved, where he shows that what truly is uh, cannot have come into being or uh, we'd be destroyed uh, because if it came into being, what would it come from? Um, it can't come from what already is, nor can it come from non-being. Um, and wh why would it come at the ex exact point in time when it did come? So Parmenides uses this PSR reasoning in order to show that there can't be generation and corruption. And this is an argument that's taken up um, very heavily um, by the following philosophers. Sino doesn't take it up though. He takes it up in a different form. So PSR, oh, uh, sorry, uh, Parmenides also uses PSR reasoning in order to show that um, what truly is cannot be um, divisible, but is indivisible. And Sino uses it in order to say, okay, let's assume the opposite. Let's assume that what truly is, is divisible. Um, then we get into uh, this host of problems because we can't think of the parts that we produce thus in a consistent way. Um, because if we think um, that what um, you know, time, space, and motion are uh, divisible, if we think they are truly and they are divisible, then the parts we get are either of nil extension. And if you have something of nil extension, how can that ever make up something that has some extension? Um, or they have um, some extension, uh, still some extension, um, and we haven't gotten um, further with the division. Then it means they are undetermined and we still need to go on. Um, or at a certain point, we, we hit minima, extended minima, but then uh, Sino thinks that they need to be uh, infinitely many. And if you have infinitely many extended parts, why don't they make up an infinitely um, extended thing, even though we, you know, the way we started out is we take a finite distance or a finite time and divide it. So, so that that's the way 
um, um, Sino takes up the criteria of inquiry from Parmenides for his paradoxes. And through these the questions, the ideas of time, space, and motion through his paradoxes. Uh, yes. So um, especially the the motion paradoxes um, uh, question the very um, intelligibility of time, space, and motion. So um, let me just briefly mention two of them so that the so-called dichotomy um, is easiest understood if you just assume there is a there's a runner who wants to cover a, a, a finite um, a track um, in a finite time um, and in order to cover this track let's say a to b um, in a finite time after g um, he first has has to cover half that track ac and after remaining half he still has to cover half let's say cd and half DE and so on ad infinitum. So it seems that in order to cover a finite distance um, AB, we have to cover infinitely many spatial parts, which seems impossible uh, for Sino. And also in order to cover this infinitely many spatial parts, we have uh, to do this in a finite time, which does seems to be always too short um, to cover it. So there seems to be something uh, in the understanding of space and time that doesn't allow us to capture them in a consistent way. Um, and uh, the other one I would briefly mention is the um, error paradox, where the idea is we try to infer from, so, so we have a, a moving error. Now you kind of just um, um, through this, this error um, and the, this moving error, um, we look at it over a finite period of time again, um, and we want to infer what's happening um, during the, the whole period by looking at one moment, one now. And it seems that during this one now, it's like a snapshot. Just imagine, you know, you're, you're, you make a photo of it and you see it sort of say standing um, in the air. Then it seems like, well, if it's standing at this moment and it's standing at that moment and that, then shouldn't it be standing the whole time? So that means the, the moving area seems to be resting yeah? um, and we can't capture motion. So in this way, um, Sino kind of deepens the challenge that um, Parmenides put forward to natural philosophy um, by also showing, okay, now let's not just look in general at, um, you know, kind of the um, natural world, but let's look more in detail what it would mean to account for time, space, and motion. And it would mean that I... Um, can give an account of how something finite can consist of infinitely many pieces, how um, infinitely many spatial pieces are related to what seems to be a finite time, how a moment of time where no motion seems to happen can be related to um, a period of time where motion seems to happen. So it's basically, by giving us these paradoxes, he's also basically giving a... Um, a test case for saying, if you want to account for motion consistently, you have to overcome these problems. Uh, let's talk about the first first or reactions against uh, Parmenides, uh, Parmenides and, and Zeno. By you, you talk about two two other people, uh, Lysippus and Democritus. Can you talk about their reactions against them? Yeah. So um, the uh, the. Greek atomists, um, Democritus and Lycippus, are um, two of the first who, who react to Parmenides outside of Ilea. 
there's others um, that I, I didn't deal with. Um, but I, I just want to mention briefly, they are not only reacting against Parmenides, they are also taking over many important points. So they are taking over these criteria for inquiry. So this kind of new rigor of investigation that Parmenides established, they are taking over that. Um, and they're also taking over many important features of how Parmenides characterized what truly is. So what truly or ultimately is for Parmenides is homogeneous and continuous. It's eternal. Um, it's not subject to generation and corruption. It's indivisible. And the um, atomists take that over. But the two big changes are that um, what truly is, what ultimately is the atoms for them, uh, is, is a plurality, not just one thing, as with Parmenides, and they are in motion. So for the atomists, the atoms always have been in motion, always will be in motion. Motion is, so to say, um, a given. And um, the the criteria, the, the take over, they take them over from Parmenides, but they start this interesting um, gradual modifications of these criteria that, that will be uh, made explicit only later on with Plato and Aristotle. So they uh, take over the principle of non-contradiction, but they do allow respects now. So with Parmenides, the principle of non-contradiction was basically um, something can't be P and not P, full stop, simpliciter. And they are now modifying it to saying, Something can't be P and not P at the same time or in the same respect or something like this. Yeah, so this kind of um, very important um, addition of different respects. So something can be P at one time, but not P at another time. That's completely fine. But you can't allow this with Parmenides um, also because of his negation operator. Um, and also they take over the principle of um, sufficient reason um, in an explicit negative form as a so-called umalon reasoning. Umalon is Greek and means no more, no rather than. And so they're taking it over in the form of saying, there's no more reason to assume F than not F. Um, and therefore we either have to assume both or neither or something third. Um, and they also decombine this um, criterion of rational admissibility with um, a, a criterion of saving the phenomena. So um, what truly is, is such, so the atoms and the void um, are such that they are not only there to explain the phenomena, but they're also there um, to, um, uh, they, they must also at the same time explain the phenomena. So they must explain why the, the phenomena we experience in the world are the way they are. Um, how about, let's talk about the, the atom is a physical interpretation of notion of being and non-being. How is it a precursor to the uh, conception of space? Mm -hmm. um, so... Uh, with Parmenides, we had a logical object. So we had um, uh, for inquiry, um, the atomists interpret in a in a physical way. So for them, being is what is full, what is bodily, the atoms, um, and non-being for them then is um, what is um, nothing, the empty, the void, um, and the the void um, plays an important role. So the void is a necessary condition for the motion of the atoms. They move in the void 
um, they are in the void, so they are located there. Um, it's separating the atoms from each other. And these are all features that are features of space. Uh, so these are all features that will be important for a conception of space. Now, this, um, um, in order to understand non-being in this way, they need a new understanding of negation. So for them, a non-being doesn't mean that it's unintelligible, like in Parmenides, uh, but it basically means um, that it's uh, it also is. So uh, Democritus has a very provoking um, fragment where he says, um, uh, being is no more than non-being. Um, both are, uh, and that means, so to say, um, in some sense, being and non-being are on a par. And that also means that we have to distinguish between being and is. Yeah? So non-being and being both are, yeah? but uh, non-being, of course, isn't, so to say, the operant being, you. And uh, uh, Plato, that's a familiar name to many other people, many people. So let's get to that. You did mention at the beginning of the interview, you talked about the principle of sufficient reason. Uh, can you talk more about Plato's employment of this principle of sufficient reason? What is it, how he employed it, and, um, and the criteria for rational admissibility? in his uh, work, uh, Timaeus. Mm -hmm. Okay, so so the Timaeus is um, one of Plato's late works, and it's the work where he gives us um, a natural philosophy. He's, he's giving us a cosmology. Um, and um, I mean, uh, Plato takes over these criteria from Parmenides, um, but again with important changes in order to show how we also can do some form of natural philosophy. Um, so he thinks that the principle of sufficient reason, so that everything there is or that comes into being and it can be thought has to have a, a reason, he thinks that this is also applicable for the sensible realm, right? So in the realm of nature and change, where things come into being and pass away, um, all these uh, changes have to have um, a reason. And he thinks there also has to be a reason for the generation of the world as a whole. So the world as a whole for him was generated. Um, and so there has to be a reason for it. And this can't be just any old reason. It has to be the best possible reason. So uh, basically, we get a divine demiurge. So the world came about by this divine demiurge ordering disorderly stuff that was there before. So also for... Plato, it's the case like with Parmenides, it's, it can't be that something comes uh, into being out of complete nothingness, right? So that's this idea of um, creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothingness. That's uh, an idea that only gets um, a lot of mileage um, with the Judeo-Christian tradition. It's not there with the ancient Greeks. The ancient Greeks think, well, we all know things don't just pop out of nothing. Right. So it, things can't come out of nothing. And it's the same for um, Plato. He thinks the world can't just come out of nothing. There was stuff, so to say, before there that was behaving disorderly. And the, the creator God, so to say, creates in um, ordering the stuff. Yeah, It brings about order, the cosmos. Um, the Greek word cosmos originally means order um, and decorum. So, so that's what the... Um, Demiurge brings about. So we see that the idea of a divine um, creator or divine demiurge comes out of TSR reasoning. Yeah? Reasoning, there has to be a sufficient and in this case, best possible um, reason. And it also um, is 
uh, kind of uh, further uh, elaborated by Plato by making clear the kind of reasons we need for natural philosophy are not just rational reasons like a demiurge, uh, but it's also what he calls necessary reason. And this is um, the stuff that's given to the demiurge before, which he calls the receptacle. It's um, his version of space, and there are traces of the material bodies in this receptacle. Um, and that's uh, what are the necessary reasons um, for um, um, Plato. And then um, as for rational admissibility, this is like um, with the atomists, where Plato um, combines it with a saving the phenomena criterion. And that's very interesting that um, Plato gets so um, into how we can save the phenomena. And he puts up a program in the Timaeus that's very important um, up to the time of um, Copernicus and Kepler and Galileo, uh, because he puts up this idea, if you see something that seems like an irregular um, phenomenon, um, like, you know, you look out and you see Jupiter uh, seeming to move um, faster and faster and faster and slowing down, slowing down, seeming to stop and then going uh, backwards, right? Um, doesn't seem to be a very orderly motion. Um, what you do then is you have to think of this kind of phenomenon as a combination of two regular motions, two or more regular motions, right? Um, and so all the heavenly phenomena we, we see, which don't seem orderly, uh, we basically analyze as a combination of regular circular motions. And that's a program um, that kind of set up what is called the saving the phenomenon um, program. And that was um, important until the early modern times. Um, one thing that he also does, what Plato also does, is that he encourages others to improve his account. So that Timaeus explicitly says, whoever can improve my account is invited as a friend, not as an enemy. Um, but um, the, the way that this account is improved is not simply by saying, um, okay, here's better data, or is more data, uh, but rather by um, improving the rational assumptions we make um, for the for the setup of our investigation. So one example is he he gives us as the his atoms. So Plato's also atomistic in in the Timaeus, um, but his atoms are uh, smallest triangles, um, and um, he. Uh, puts up as a possibility that somebody may argue, well, perhaps triangles are not the most, the ultimate um, atoms, but perhaps we have to start with lines or points or something like this. So if somebody can give us an argument why we should consider lines or points as atoms rather than triangles, then this person would be invited as a, as a friend. But this shows that, you know, this kind of triangles and lines we are talking about, they are below the, the realm of perception. Uh, so there, it, you always need a bunch of them in order to be perceptible. So we're not talking about, okay, who has better empirical um, um, observation, but we're talking about this rational admissibility, who can give a better argument for why our starting point should be lines rather than triangles. And, and at the beginning of the interview, you talked about Plato using mathematical structure to explain the world, the natural world, numbers, series, uh, geometrical forms. I'm curious to know more about that. Sure. So um, as I mentioned, mathematics is used um, in order to show that 
the field of nature in itself is also understandable and intelligible. Um, and Plato uses mathematics in three um, areas. So he, he uses uh, mathematical proportions um, in order to um, explain the unity of the world body. So the, the cosmos as a whole is set up um, out of all the material days and the, the material in, in ancient times is fire, air, water um, and um, earth. Um, but Plato wants to show that, so to say, they are held together through mathematical proportions, through a certain proportion of one material to a certain proportion of another material. Um, the proportions are also used to explain the setup of the orbits of the heavens where the planets move. Um, but Plato goes further. He then uses geometrical forms to as a basis for um, the building blocks of the universe. So he's taking fire, air, water, and earth not as the most basic elements. Yeah, he's making fun of that, but he's thinking that they are based on mathematical uh, bodies. Um, so fire, for instance, is based on tetrahedra. Um, and um, these tetrahedra, again, are kind of built up out of triangles. And this allows um, Plato um, to show that, okay, this, this material world is in itself intelligible because it's ultimately based on geometrical forms and we know geometry is a secure science and it also allows him to explain um, transformations from you know let's say fire to air or water to air as transformations from one geometrical form to another yeah? so um, basically these kind of changes that may seem unintelligible are now explained as changes from one geometrical form to another one. Um, and he also uses it to explain further physical features. So for instance, um, the, um, uh, the, the um, experience uh, that we have with the hotness of fire um, is explained in terms of the um, acuteness um, of the angles of a geometrical body, right? So we have um, with tetrahedra, we have this kind of uh, very pointed um, uh, geometrical body, and that explains also why we experience fires um, pierced. So he also tries to do that. So we have proportions, we have geometrical bodies, and then as a third one, um, Plato uses the number series um, to uh, give an account of the motions of the sensible object. So basically what he does is he gives us a, a setup of the heavenly bodies, um, and from this um, set up from these heavenly bodies, we derive measurement units, days, nights, months, years, and so on. And with the help of these measurement units, we can measure um, all um, processes in a sensible world um, and there, thereby make them intelligible because we can connect them to the number series. Uh, we can kind of quantify them. Uh, in the last part of the book, you talk about uh, Aristotle. And he, can you talk about the physics, his, his physics, and how he presented a solution to Zeno's uh, paradoxes? Sure. Um, I'm just wondering whether perhaps um, one thing we should do before, because then that makes Aristotle also clear, is hmm. just mention that there's still a problem with, you know, I said measuring motion, but yeah, sure. with, with Plato. Yeah, yeah, please. Um, yeah, yeah. We're only measuring time. So that's, that's important because Aristotle, you know, will take it up and, and change it slightly. Mm. So with what we find with, with Plato is 
um, all that's measured is the time emotion takes. Um, and time and space for Plato are on completely different ontological levels. So there's a real problem in bringing them together. Um, time is created by the demiurge in order to make the world more orderly, right? To help him to order this world. Um, and uh, on the other hand, space, the receptacle, is something that's uncreated, that's just given to the demiurge, and it's behaving disorderly. So they're completely different uh, ontological um, status. Um, and we can't bring them together to um, measure motion. Um, because in order to measure motion, we need to bring together how much time was covered, uh, sorry, how much space was covered in how much time. So we need both. Um, and um, in Plato, we can't do that. We can only, so to say, measure um, the, the time. For uh, Plato, there's, there's a simple uh, measure. So when he, he talks about speed, the speed of the um, um, heavens, the speed of the different planets, but he reduces speed to um, time. Um, and um, the, what he basically does is he measures the time everything needs in order to accomplish its task or to get back to its point in the heaven. Yeah, if we say we, we, we measure um, the motion of this um, heavenly phenomenon, we, uh, let's say of, of the moon, we look when it's back on its um, circle. Um, and for him, some planets are faster because they are moving in smaller circles and therefore they accomplish their task um, um, sooner than, than others. Um, so uh, what that means, if we translate that into, um, so to say, the, the motions of the sensible world is that in principle, if we look at Achilles and the tortoise, um, the tortoise could be faster than Achilles, um, because um, if the if we look at uh, the tortoise, if let's say both are, are training for a race in Olympia, yeah, um, and the tortoise is always uh, training in a tiny little um, stadium. Um, Achilles is moving is is training in a really huge one. Then the tortoise is uh, accomplishing its task. It's getting back, so to say, to its starting point uh, earlier than Achilles because he has a much um, bigger tasks to do. So if you reduce um, speed only to the um, time taken to get back your, to your starting point or to your accomplishing point to finishing your task, um, without being able to take into account um, the size of the task, then what happens is that um, basically um, the, the uh, Athens, when they look at um, the tortoise having a much smaller task than Achilles, they may have to choose the tortoise to go for to Olympia for them rather than Achilles. So that's, that's the problem that we have that's um, throughout the time that I'm looking at, if we reduce speed to time, which happens um, in some sense also still in Aristotle, but there are some important changes. Um, yeah, perhaps we should, at the very end, briefly talk about the notion of motion as such. Yeah. Uh. Okay, but do you want me to, to move on to... Uh, Aristotle? Yes, yes, of course. Yeah. So I guess that's a perfect segue now to the question I asked earlier. <laughs> okay. So, um, so, sorry, but I'm, I'm now meant to talk about Aristotle, right? Yeah, or... that's right. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, um, Aristotle uh, reacts to um, sinus paradoxes in his physics. 
Um, and he reacts to um, what I would call um, the continuum problem and the um, spatiotemporal problems. So think about the, the runner again. Um, we have on the one hand the problem that this finite hole seems to contain infinitely many parts. And I call this the continuum problem because it's a problem that arises for all continua. You have the same for you know the finite track, you have the same for time on its own. Yeah. Um, before you can uh, live through half an hour, you have to live through the first quarter of an hour and then the, the remaining half of that and so on. Yeah. Um, and you have it with motion. So it's not specific to motion, it's something that's a problem for all continua. And what um, the atomists do is basically say the, the whole part um, relationship that we are looking at is always that way that the parts are prior to the whole. It's the atoms that make up the whole whatever it is. And um, Aristotle takes, so to say, the other um, whole part relationship by saying, okay, in, in, with continua, it's always the whole that's prior. And so we never get actually to a point that we have parts that precede and make up the whole. So say so we can't um, um, legitimately ask this question, how do we get from infinitely many parts to the whole? Um, rather, we have um, this kind of uh, finite whole that we can divide as we please, but these parts are not fixed once and for all. And, and so they're not uh, prior there um, up um, this hole. Um, and what Seino also does is he's inferring from uh, something is divisible as we please to something is completely divided. Yeah? So from um, having the ability to be divided to, okay, and now it is uh, completely divided. And then we get into all this um, um, problems. And Aristotle here brings in his kind of very powerful tool to distinguish between potential and actual um, as a kind of metaphysical tool he uses in general. Um, and he shows that while in principle, you know, we can divide where we want, this doesn't imply that we can make all divisions at the same time. Yeah, simultaneously, because also some parts will overlap, and so you can't actually divide it um, completely in the way it is divisible. Um, so this is the part for the, um, the continuum problem. Okay. He also, this continuum problem also is a problem that he um, brings in to solve um, the paradox of the moving error. So Aristotle takes up from Seno his understanding of the now. Yeah, the understanding of the now Pacino is it's uh, indivisible. And if you have this indivisible snapshot, right, then it seems the, the error is uh, not moving. Um, and Aristotle takes up this now and says, yeah, um, this is important, but it's not a part of uh, a duration. It's just a limit. Yeah? So the now that's indivisible is just a limit. And so um, we can't infer from what's happening at the limit. Limit has different features um, than, so to say, what it limits. Uh, and so we can't infer from what happens at a limit um, to what happens during the whole um, period. So um, we have the continuum problem on the one hand, where Aristotle grants Sinus right to say we can always divide um, things um, further, but he's wrong to ask how these parts can make up the whole. Um, and we never get to parts with nil extension, nor do we get to um, infinitely many extended parts. We get to parts that are not yet fully determined with Aristotle, uh, but that doesn't matter because the parts don't constitute a whole. But the second problem is um, what I call the, the, the motion problem. 
So it's the problem that um, um, we have um, to cover, it seems, infinitely many spatial parts in a finite time. So the relationship between time and space. Um, and uh, there, um, Aristotle makes one important um, step, one important point um, that's, that's necessary, namely to show that time and space are internally structured in the same way. They're both continuum, so we don't have uh, infinitely many spatial parts that have to be covered in a finite time. Rather, if we divide our finite race course infinitely, yeah, go on ad infinitum, we actually have to divide this, the time in the same way. Yeah? If I say before I cover uh, the whole distance, I have to cover half the distance, we also have to say we have to cover half the distance at half the time and the remaining half distance in the remaining half time and so on. So we, we actually have to divide them in the same way. So that's a very important point and that's basically where all accounts of um, motion that um, allow us to bring in time and space build on, that both time and space can be understood as continua. But interestingly, he doesn't um, go um, further. Um, Aristotle doesn't actually really give us um, the relation of time and space. So he kind of um, prepares um, for that um, in his dealing with Sinus paradoxes. And there is um, something where he explicitly actually uses it, but he, he, here's a stopping point where we don't get quite our conception of time and space. Does, does he finally manage to present an explicit account of uh, motion sufficient for natural philosophy? <laughs> Well, yes and no, so to say. Um, so we get uh, we get a very interesting um, treatise on measurement, the first um, um, treatise on measurement we have in his metaphysics, um, and that's obviously important, you know, for thinking of measuring motion. Um, but um, this treatise on measurement makes it clear that uh, the the measure has to be. Uh, homogeneous with what is measured, right? So I can only measure length with a length. A length. I can measure a weight with a weight. I can't measure um, a, a temperature with my ruler. Yeah, I mean, that's... Uh, um, but it's not only has to be homogeneous, but it also has to be simple. And that's the problem when you measure speed, because speed is not simple. Speed is a relation of time and space. Um, and so if you um, um, think that the measure is simple, then you can't actually measure um, speed in the end. And that's what's happened with um, um, Aristotle. So when we see him dealing with Sino, we actually see him um, taking as basic this relation of time and space um, in a famous um, kind of account of comparing two different uh, motions of different speeds, where the only thing that stays constant is the relation of time and space. But his explicit account, um, which is so to say based on his um, treatise on measurement and his metaphysics, doesn't allow him to think of a complex measure. And that's one reason why the one paradox of Seno, the moving row paradox, that really asks us to um, think about the relation of time and space, there is sort of and very short and just basically says, oh, okay, it's not taking the relativity of motion into account. So um, in the end, a really full-blown explicit account of uh, the measure of speed as a relation of time and space had to wait for another 2,000 years. Uh, Professor Sattler, before we end this conversation, you earlier mentioned that you were working some other projects. Uh, can you talk about the project you're currently working on? Right, sure. 
Um, so I'm I'm working on um, two more books, um, one book on space and one on time, where I also want to um, look at how um, the the basic concepts first develop, um, and then um, uh, where uh, further. Um, but um, in in a way that uh, closer to what we do. So in the in the in the space book, um, I'm trying to show um, how we actually what we call space um, brings in quite a lot of different features. So it brings in a feature of um, this is where something is, a location. Um, space is also what separates things from each other. Um, it is where motion takes place. And there's again, interesting Sino pa uh, paradoxes by Sino that show that um, the uh, function of uh, where emotion takes place and where something is located may not easily go together. Um, and we need a metric. Um, and all these features are not, um, so to say, e easily brought together and it takes some time to bring them together. So that's um, uh, what I'm, I'm looking at in the space book, um, where I also look sort of say how space, I mean, space and time are often taken by us to be something that's just basically given in the world and we just have to take it up. But there's there's lots and lots of conceptualization that go in uh, into our understanding of time and space. And in the time book, um, I'm really very much interested um, in um, uh, notions of time that, so to say, have fallen to the side that are not uh, important any longer. So one, uh, just to give you one uh, point, um, the um, it, we normally take it that there is one universal um, time frame. Of course, we are different time zones, as we, the, the two of us, um, but we can all put uh, put whatever happens in one calendar, right? No, no matter what you do, our, our conversation today, um, if you go skiing, if somebody meditates, if somebody gives birth, we can all put it in a in a calendar. Perhaps not while it's going on, but you know, afterwards, we can all say it's happening at that and that time. And that's something that's foreign in ancient times, because so to say, time is thought from events and the happenings. Each of them has their own temporal structure, and for them, it wouldn't make sense to to so to say, put in the same calendar, um, let's say, an encounter I have with a divinity um, with um, some um, administrative meeting um, or some philosophical dis uh, discussion. So uh, there's an interesting move that we find around the time of Plato, actually, of unifying um, the temporal um, accounts um, that um, is, so to say, we don't have any longer. And I'm, I'm interested in uh, what's getting lost by not having that any longer. So um, these are the kind of two projects. Um, uh, you've actually put a lot of question marks on my head. It kind of defamiliarized many of the concepts we take for granted. Uh, and and I'm, I'm sure the other two books that you mentioned on time and, and space, it's going to be perfect trilogy, motion, time and space. Uh, thank you very much, Professor Barbara Sandler, for, for speaking with us on New Books Network and sharing your thoughts uh, with, with our listeners. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure to talk to you.